Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. Hello, my friends. Happy New Year. I am so excited for this episode, but I'm also just so excited for so many episodes that we have coming up. I did so many great interviews at the end of December, and we have so many wonderful ones scheduled for this month of January. So I'm just so excited for all of the great episodes we should have coming out soon. Um, But first, I would like to share with you that at the end of December, while we were on break, the Swallow Your Pride podcast hit 4 million downloads, which is absolutely insane, thinking just a few years ago what I was doing with creating this thing. But uh, first and foremost, I want to thank all of you that tune in every week, those of you that have come on the podcast, those of you that have shared the podcast, those of you that have taken tips from it and implemented it with your patients or have facilitated any change in your settings. And I'm just eternally grateful for the community that's been created by this podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you. This wouldn't be what it is without you. So thank you. And we will be doing a giveaway over on Instagram to celebrate the 4 million downloads. Uh, So if you want to follow me on Instagram, Teresa Richard SLP, and I will, we'll get that out by the end of this week. So I just wanted to say thank you, but This next guest, this is actually the perfect episode for announcing that we hit 4 million downloads um, because our next guest is going to talk about a paper that she recently published that actually talks about the education uh, that Swallow Your Pride provides. So um, I love this conversation with Dr. Jordan Hazelwood. It's pretty raw and vulnerable from my perspective, um, but she's a wonderful, wonderful human and made me feel comfortable. And she's just a wonderful researcher as well. So um, thank you, Dr. Hazelwood, for coming on and, and doing this this show. And I hope everybody learns a lot from it. And uh, yeah, so w- without further ado, uh, Dr. Jordan Hazelwood is our next guest on the Swallow Your Pride podcast. Uh, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Before completing her PhD in Health and Rehab Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, she worked as an SLP specializing in the assessment and rehab of adults with swallowing disorders and traumatic brain injury. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, has served as the professional development manager for ASHA's special interest group in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and has earned fellowships in clinical research ethics and interprofessional education. Dr. Hazelwood teaches dysphagia, voice and resonance disorders, and neuroanatomy and physiology to graduate and undergraduate students. Her research focuses on the training and education of clinicians and students in dysphagia management while considering the impact of standardization procedures, physiologic dysfunction, and quality of life on health outcomes. Uh, So I hope you all love this episode with Jordan. And again, 
Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in every week. And the show continues to go on because of your support. So so thank you. Thank you again. And please do pay it forward. Please share an episode with any of your colleagues. Please take something that you learned from this and implement it with your patients or in your facility. And I will be eternally grateful for all of you. So thank you again. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning. It's nice to be here with you. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. Um, So Jordan and I were just like getting really, really into it, like just before we hit record. So now we hit record so we can actually have the conversation. So we're not going into this like our, like my normal intro or anything, but I don't, we'll We'll let everybody else join us. Yeah. Come join us at the party, people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So welcome, Jordan. I, you know, I know that I've I've Thanks. quote unquote known you online for, for years. And I just have always respected your work as a clinician researcher, which is something that I just really strive to be. I, you know, I've been a clinician for 15 years. I've been a business owner of online resources, which is what we're going to talk about today. But that, now I'm also going through PhD school as well. So I have this really weird perspective of things. <laughs> so yes, yeah, well, you're in a unique time of learning. That's for sure. With getting yeah. your PhD, it's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. 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 So, all right, well, let's dive into it. Yeah. If you you want to tell the people a little bit about who you are and then a little bit about this paper that we're going to talk about today. Sure. So I'm an assistant professor at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, and I have had the pleasure of working with uh, some really great mentors. I earned my PhD at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston under the mentorship of doctors Bonnie Martin Harris and Heather Bonilla. And I have also um, decided to get some mentorship from my colleague here, Dr. Gary McCullough at App State. So I feel like I've really had some great training and my goal in my uh, career is to grow respected students who provide the best clinical care. That's my academic mission statement. And I really feel like through my teaching research and service, um, I am aiming to do that. And it's one of the reasons why I'd like to talk about some of my research today, because it specifically talks about how students and clinicians learn and how we use different resources to help our patients with dysphagia. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the paper we're going to talk about today, um, yeah. Why don't you talk about it first and then I'll, I was just about to dive in and give my opinion, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That's okay. So my area of research is specifically looking at how to train clinicians and students because 
we know as a field, SLPs, hiring managers know that students do not come prepared to the field, especially coming prepared to treat dysphagia. There's a lot of on-the-job training that happens. Um, I was a product of that, even though I had really good mentorship. There was a lot of on-the-job training that occurred, and one of my goals is to prevent my students from having to learn on the fly, if you will, and teaching them that when they do have to find other outside resources than their textbooks that are already outdated in grad school, that they can uh, critically review information and be able to understand what's appropriate evidence, how to apply the evidence, and um, be able to individualize that to their treatment care plans for their patients. So I recently had a paper come out in 2021 called Critical Review of Online Resources Frequently Used by Certified SLPs for Dysphagia Management, and it was published in the ASHA SIG-13 Perspectives Journal. And I had the wonderful opportunity of getting to uh, write this article with a student. And this came from her undergraduate research project. She is one of those people who says a lot of questions about, well, why is that the case, right? She took a lot of initiative and she was noticing that there were things that were being posted on social media and online that have a lot to do with dysphagia. And she, she and I started talking about resources that students use outside of the classroom because I was trying to help facilitate their review of these resources while I was teaching dysphagia. So we decided to put together a survey and we asked uh, affiliates of ASHA SIG-13 what resources they typically use for dysphagia Uh, management. So what kinds of things are people using that aren't necessarily textbooks or journal articles? And so we gathered a bunch of uh, resources together and decided that the resources needed to be reviewed, right? A critical review of the resources to determine, are these good resources for you to use? Are these credible and viable? Mind you, this does not answer the question of reliable and valid. This just answers the question of credibility. And so the first problem we actually had was trying to find a metric, a standardized metric, to be able to apply this idea of critical review. We found a, a metric called the discern metric. It is used in healthcare. It's been used for pain management. It's been used for um, other types of things in healthcare, but specifically for peer-reviewed journal articles. And so the discern has a couple of different questions, questions looking at, are the aims of the article clear? Does the article achieve the aims? Is it relevant? What clear resources or information were used to compile the publication? Is it clear when the information is used or reported? Is the article balanced and unbiased? Does it provide details and additional sources to support information? And does the article refer to areas of uncertainty? Now, for those who do common peer review of journal articles, there's obviously the whole process. When you have a referee journal, there's people behind the scenes that are doing peer review. These are questions that we typically will ask. And this is um, kind of our thought process behind the peer review journal article anyway. And we're giving feedback to the articles so that they can rewrite so that when the article is published, hopefully these questions are answered. But it doesn't mean that articles don't come out that are published that actually fully uh, achieve these questions in a in a, a reasonable way. But uh, so the discern metric answers these questions and tries to apply them to different resources within the healthcare system. Uh, it's also helpful and can be applied uh, for 
patients or consumers of healthcare information. So it's a way for them to be able to understand how to critically review information that's coming on the consumer side of things. But we decided to take this discern metric and apply it to these uh, resources that the SLPs had reported were being frequently used by them for dysphagia management. And we have several different resources that were reported, and you can find the list of those in the article, um, how frequently they were reported, and then we gave a mean overall discern score. And we found a cutoff of uh, a discern score of 32 or above was indicative of a high-quality uh, resource overall. And so the majority of the resources were high overall, but we noticed there were specific things that were maybe a little bit lacking for certain resources. So we did a further dive into the item analysis of each of the questions that the discern score asked. And we found that overall, while we do have a lot of resources that are scoring high, there's specific areas where a lot of the resources that are being reported by use, um, by the clinicians as being frequently used for dysphagia management, there are specific areas that were lacking across the board. We were also kind of surprised to find that some of the resources that people would typically think of as being really high quality didn't actually score as high as you would anticipate that they would. Uh, so for instance, we have some Facebook pages that uh, people have put together. We have professional organization websites that weren't as um, high quality as you would anticipate that they would be. We have specific professional uh, websites, educational websites, uh, podcasts as well. And so interestingly, when we were looking at the breakdown of the different item analysis, what we found is that for the questions that um, asked about whether the resource provided details of additional sources or if the resource refers to areas of uncertainty. Those two questions scored um, the the least for most of the resources that people are using. And so the takeaway from this is, one, people are using a very broad range of resources Two, we don't have a metric right now in our field and not a metric specific even to dysphagia that actually encompasses all these different types of resources that people are using. So that is one limitation of the study to think about is that the discern metric was developed for use of public, um, like peer-reviewed publications, and we were applying it to things like podcasts and websites and social media. So something to consider that we we are lacking that in our field. And that's an area that has been um, progressing this information science or dissemination yeah. science that we think about of how we communicate our science or our research to consumers or lay people outside of the field or even clinicians who are not lay people, but who aren't necessarily academic researchers, how we're communicating that information to them so that they can consume it uh, the evidence in a way that can be applied uh, clinically and relevantly to their patient populations. But having a metric to be able to help clinicians and consumers to say, is this resource, whatever type of resource it possibly could be, is this something that is uh, a valid and reliable resource is a different question, but is this a resource that passes a critical review? Um, is it is it a good, does it match a good critique? Um, so that's one limitation. The, the third limitation is that 
a lot of the resources that we found, ironically, are ones that are behind a paywall. So things like uh, subscription-based education uh, platforms, there's professional organizations that you have to pay information or pay membership fees to be a part of. Um, and then even Facebook pages, while they were not necessarily behind a paywall, you have to request to join and have the admin uh, have you added to that Facebook page. So there is some type of a barrier, if you will, to being able to have full access to those uh, resources. Yeah. So one of the limitations is that we didn't actually access any of those things that were behind the barrier. We just did a face value critique of the information that was available publicly because that's what our patients yeah, do, yeah. right? Yeah. Our patients don't pay subscriptions or membership fees, or right. they don't have the ability to access Facebook um, different pages that way. So we were kind of taking it from a patient perspective of if they were actually trying to look for resources from themselves as well, how yeah. do these resources stand up? So that's, that's the information uh, that's published in the paper, but you know, it was a little bit, um, it was a little dicey because it called, it called out a few people and I'll even acknowledge, you know, um, swallow your pride podcast was the most frequently used, uh, 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 referenced resource. And there were a few areas that could be improved. Yeah. It's it's so wild. So this is sort of what I was telling, you know, Jordan off the air. It's Gosh, when we created, when I, when I created this thing, we, it's a huge team thing now, don't want to take responsibility for all of it. It was never for this purpose, I think. (laughs) So I think it's really, you know, I, when I started it, it was just on a whim, like, Hey, I have some really smart friends and I appreciate having conversations with them. It it really stemmed from uh, this guy, this group, this group text that still goes on. There's six of us (laughs) in this group. And we would sort of just say, Hey, like I saw this patient today, this was wild. Or like, how would you guys approach this patient? Or like, and it's just my really smart friends talking about what we would do with different patients or what we saw or things like that. And I was like, you know what, like how many little groups of these exist around the world, you know, but like, why aren't we just talking about it on a much bigger platform? And so I just sort of started putting together some information at the time I was doing mobile fees and I had worked with it. You know, I was visiting all different skilled nursing facilities and every skilled nursing facility I went to every SLP had the same, you know, attitude about just feeling lonely, like wishing there was people talking about issues that they were facing at work. And so yeah, it's interesting that I, you know, I was like, all right, well, let's start talking about this. Like, I'm going to bring on some of my friends and let's talk about some clinical topics. And, and so I think that uncertainty question, I think it's really funny because I feel like that's what we do talk about a lot. Um, In the beginning, we talked a lot about those uncertainty topics, but what's interesting was a lot of the feedback that I got was all you're talking about is these topics that we don't know the answer to. When are you going to actually give us answers to our questions? Sure. And so that's when we started I wouldn't say shifting the podcast, but that's when I started bringing on a lot of the researchers because I was like, crap, you know what? We as clinicians only are interpreting this as X, Y, Z. Let's get the full story or let's hear, you know, where this all came from. But like you said, I mean, now that I'm going through PhD school, my brain is totally warped with, you know, bias and limitations and like right. <laughs> all those things is, is what's going on in my researcher brain. But in my clinician brain, it's like, well, what the heck do we do with these patients? You know, right. What's the answer? Yeah. So, well, so it's interesting that, you know, that was really what started the podcast was just to get these topics out there. And I never expected it to be this big information resource, but yeah. 
Well, and I think that shows the idea of the visibility, right? That yeah. clinicians really do feel like they need something to hang on to, yeah. but they need to be able to evaluate the information that's being put out because not not everything that's being published is equal value. Um, and I think that's an area, a skill that needs to be developed. And one of the questions we asked in the paper was, is there a difference between how students evaluate resources and how experienced clinicians evaluate resources? And we found there really was no difference, oh, wow. which that's is surprising right. because yeah, I yeah. figured, yeah. well, maybe the experienced SLPs would be better at this. But we think about this idea of critical review. It's it's kind of new in our field. Um, Researchers have always kind of thought about this, but from critical review or critical thinking as it integrates into clinical practice, this that that thought process has evolved as well as how we uh, get resources. That's evolved. I mean, your podcast has been going on since when? How long? Uh, almost five years. I think we're just yeah. 5 million downloads, which is totally insane. Yeah. Which is really, really great. But how much has changed in five years? Yeah, I mean, a lot. Yeah. the idea of a podcast was brand new five years ago. Now there's podcasts on every corner. So that is brand new information, but we think that's how people are consuming information. I mean, Instagram and other social media sites, all this is brand new. And I think that's one of the things is that, you know, as a professor, I'm thinking this is what my students are doing. This is where they're hanging out. They're spending their time. I used to be literally nose in the journal in the library because I didn't have internet. I had to walk to the library. Right. So um, it's changed and we have to, we have to keep up and figure out how that information is being disseminated. But that idea that there's so much information now that you can't just pick willy nilly. You really do have to have the skill of being able to critique it and critically review it. And that information I don't think is necessarily being taught to students, which um, clinicians now I think are a little bit more aware of that because they do that work when they're working with their patients. But that's a skill we need to teach our students explicitly, not implicitly where like, Oh, you just figure it out as you go along because they don't know the difference. Right. Um, Marketing does a really great job at helping them make decisions, but they might not be the best decisions all the time. So we need to be able to teach them that in the classroom and have the conversations about, okay, who's on Instagram? Who are you following? Do you know about this person? Do they have the good work? What have they done? Um, And even a PhD is not necessarily a good marker of a good researcher. Um, You know, so yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's touchy, uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have that conversation because it's a competency, right? Yeah. Thinking about critically reviewing is a competency. Um, and we need to be able to acknowledge that peer review journal articles is not the only point of access that research or information about clinical care is coming to both clinicians as well as patients. Um, we have other types of resources that people access regularly now than we did even five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I I have two thoughts. I think, you know, what's interesting sort of, to sort of go back, the reason that the MedSLP collective was then created was like, okay, these people are seeking solutions, right? We've sort of exposed all these problems in our field and in dysphagia management Mm -hmm. and, so now how do we solve them? You know, what information is out there? And so that was sort of the impetus for the MedSLP Collective was, okay, so now we will compile the information, we'll compile the resources and give them to, to clinicians. So what's, you know, what I'm, I'm really most proud of is, is sort of 
we've created this entire editorial review committee that reviews all the, the research to make sure that, or to review all our resources, to make sure that the research is up to date. It's, you know, sometimes they will suggest more up-to-date articles or, or different things like that. So what I think is interesting is, is really the entire MetaSLP collective runs on member feedback. So the resources that are created are because they were suggested or written in or recommended by a clinician. So what's interesting is sometimes we'll get people like, what is this resource? Like, why is this topic even created? This isn't something that we even discuss in the field. And it's interesting because it actually is a hot topic in somebody else's building, you know, in somebody else's facility. So I I just always find that so interesting that, you know, just because it's not relevant to you doesn't mean it's not relevant to the field. Like, and these are all things that we need to be talking about. But I think also, you know, to your point about how to critically appraise these sort of or critically review these resources, I'm literally in cap hell right now, which is critically appraised paper for PhDs. I have to do three this semester. But what's so interesting is that's totally flipped my brain upside down in how do we critically review research and resources that are out there. And it's it's really interesting as someone who is a content creator, knowing what some of these research papers have taken on a life of their own. And if they were critically appraised, I think our our views of them would be different, not in a bad way, but just we wouldn't really view them in this light. We would view them in this light. And so I think, you know, I I, I love what you're doing, Jordan, because it's so commendable because it is a skill that we don't know how to do. You know, we are SLPs with information overload thrown into these medically complex, really freaking stressful situations. Here, cure your patient. And sure. so, you know, when when you're looking at it, like you're getting fire hosed from a million directions, you know, you're just looking for a life raft at that point. You know, what, what is, what information is out there that can help me with my patient today? But then on the flip side is, is the information that you're getting good, valid, reliable, you know, so that, so that's interesting. I I do like that you pointed out that that scale does not discuss validity and reliability, just, just discernment, I guess, but it, yeah, well, yeah. hence yeah. the name of that metric, right? Yeah, I feel like I'm all over the place because literally my clinician brain, my business owner brain, and my PhD brain are all like sword fighting in my head right now. So, <laughs> Well, that's good. I'm glad I'm making you think. But the interesting part about the discern metric and going back to this idea that researchers or, or clinicians and students were equally bad at discerning yeah. Um <laughs> That gives me hope because that means people can be trained. That means we can teach them and they can learn. Um, And, you know, I I had an opposite view. I was thinking that students would be good about that because I'm thinking that I do think that that professors and instructors are doing a phenomenal job of bringing these topics to light now. Whereas it seems like we still have clinicians that may have been working 20, 30 years that this is what they know and this is what they're sticking to and they're not changing. So it's it's interesting that you found that they're equally bad. Well, yeah, well, equally not so great yet (laughs) about that. But interestingly, um, to kind of go off what you were saying, thinking that clinicians would know, but clinicians hold a lot of bias, right? So we were talking about this idea of bias. And this is where I want to encourage everybody to go back to the primary resource. So, you know, there's, there's seminal papers in our field. I think about Langmore's 2008 paper, uh, a lot of people will say, well, what are the risk factors for dysphagia? And they'll name them off, but they won't be able to say that that's the paper and why and what population and 
where this was done and how this was applied. Um, another one I think about a lot is people will talk about the EAT-10 um, score of three cutoff. And uh, go back, what was the original population that the EAT-10 was validated on? Yeah. Um, is that the same population? Because a lot of those patients had esophageal dysphagia. A lot of people don't realize that, right? So yeah. going back to that initial primary resource is key. Um, to understand how to interpret them, the metrics that we're thinking about. And, you know, a lot of my work, um, having worked with Dr. Martin Harris, is in metric analysis and standardization of protocols. And so that's another reason why I'm, I'm interested in this idea of critical review and appraisal, because, you know, even we tried to use this discern metric, which is a standardized metric, it still doesn't apply a- appropriately. So that's a limitation of the paper that we acknowledge. But um, so how do we think about using all these different types of resources? Is there a standardized way to uh, critically review them or appraise them? How do we teach that critical appraisal? And then, you know, when we're thinking about how we apply specific points of information in our field, do we do that because someone else has told us that's how it is? Or are we actually going back to the resource itself and, again, applying those critical review skills to be able to determine if it's applicable for our own patient? Yeah. So, I think um, that takes time. That's the hard part. It takes uh, skill. That's another part. So people have to be willing to uh, drop their biases or drop their information. But the hard thing is is you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm here talking about this today so that we can hopefully uh, increase people's awareness of that and maybe get them thinking about things in a little bit of different light. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I love everything that you say, Jordan. I think, you know, it's, you can't please everybody is, is really my, my bottom line here, but I've certainly tried with different aspects, like swallow your pride. So many people are like, can you give us CEUs for this? Or, and if we do that, then you have to pay for it. Like, there's no way that people don't understand the process of reporting ASHA or CEUs to ASHA is so time and labor intensive that nobody in their right mind is going to do it for free if it's not attached to a business. And so I really wanted to keep swallow your pride completely free. Like you said, not behind a paywall. And, and I mean, that probably is why it has the amount of downloads and it is so widely used because there is no, you know, there's, there's nothing, no barriers to it. Anybody can listen to it that has access to a phone or a computer. Sure. Then on the flip side with the MedSLP collective, in order to curate the resources, you know, that people are like, well, why isn't this free? Just like the podcast is free. And it, the, the impetus of the podcast was just to share information, just to talk about clinical experiences I don't ask people, hey, you know, we need to make sure that you're bringing 27 research papers and that's not it. That's not this, you know, the collective, we do try to keep the quality very, very, very high. It's one of our core values for it. But in in doing that, you have to pay people, you know, you have to pay people to write resources. You have to pay our editorial review team. And it it is what it is, you know, And, and so you said that you guys didn't appraise some things that were behind a paywall and that's tough because, it, yeah, what's the, yeah, so I would be curious in, in like the free resources without a barrier and the ones behind a paywall, you know, somehow getting access to those to, to look at those because it's, it's just not from a business owner perspective, it's the time that goes into what goes on behind the scenes, people have to be paid for. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, compensation is also a big deal, you know, yeah. um, yeah. as a researcher, this is, I'm volunteering my time today to come on yeah. and talk with you, but, yeah. um, you know, I give talks, 
uh, we don't get paid for what we're worth in general anyway across the field. Yeah. So that's yeah. a whole a whole different can of worms. Right, right. Um, but yeah, compensation for expertise or clinical care or anything. Um, you shouldn't do work without being compensated, but there's, that gets into a sticky line of, well, how does compensation work with just the altruistic vision of patient care? Right. Right. But nobody goes to their job for free. So it's a, it's, it's a a very sticky area for sure. So I don't envy you in that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So, um, but I definitely think that, um, I mean, I have more to say about that. Even the idea that we have to pay for journal articles, right? And yes. I review, for, I review for free. I don't get paid for reviewing for journal articles. It was part of my job. So maybe I get paid in that way, but yeah, it's, it's a whole, it's, yeah. it's a it's sticky. It's, it, I think what's so wild is, is there's so many opposite perspectives. Like we have people that will write resources for the collective and they'll say, you know, like, oh, I'm happy to contribute this because it's just my contribution to the field. And it's like, okay, well, that's okay. But like, I mean, this is what we pay to do it. I'm happy to pay you. Then on the flip side, we have people that are like, I can't do this for any less than this exorbitant amount of, and I'm like, I, I don't have that to, it's not possible for me to give you that. Like, so it's very interesting people's perspectives of, you know, wanting to do things for free. And and same with our editorial review process. We've had, we've had reviewers, same thing that are like, oh, you don't need to pay me for this. I'm used to doing it for the journals. And I'm like, no, but I want to, like your time is worth something to me. And then on the flip side, we have people that are like, this is my rate to review something and it's outrageous. And so it's constantly, you know, every day I come into work, I'm just, I get 27 pies to the face, depending on, you know, what's going on. But it's so, it's interesting. And I don't, I, I just think, I don't judge people for feeling certain ways because I know we all have different priorities and beliefs and and things like that. It's just very different because it, and and I just, I wish people could respect where people came from, where people's backgrounds and things like that, because just because they don't want to get paid for something doesn't mean they don't want to get paid for something else and vice versa. Sure. Well, and I, I just want to say this out loud because I, I, um, I work with students, undergraduates a lot. You know, I have a whole undergraduate lab and my students are eager beavers. Um, we forget sometimes as we move into the professional world that there's different ways that people get paid, if that yeah. makes sense. So, yeah. um, but I, I don't equate payment with value. There's different yeah. things yeah. like, you know, you, you can sh- show your value or get, um, have value expressed to you in different ways. So, um, what I'm constantly coaching my students of the eager beavers are the ones that want to get on good graces of different people. And they constantly say, well, I'm available whenever, just call me, just let me know, or I'll be here or I can work over break. I want to look at them and say, no, you cannot. (laughs) It's not acceptable. When you go into the working world as a professional, you're not going to be available to your boss 24 seven and available to work all the weekends and holidays. Like there's such a thing as boundaries and those are very healthy. Right. And there's a reason why researchers write grants and we provide letters of recommendation for stipends. So students can get compensated for their time. Um, There's a whole argument that that compensation is not enough, but, um, you know, I, I like to coach my students and say, don't tell me you're available 24 seven, because 
you know, I will not take advantage of you in, in doing that, but there are people that will. And yeah. so if you let yourself be available all the time, then that's the expectation. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a good way for us to start training them in the idea of value and compensation and being available. Um, you know, which is a whole different topic than we started with, but I don't know. I think it's important to, to it, it, it's, very, it's, it's super important. I mean, I'm, I, do, I go in waves to be honest. Like I'm such a, like, I will put my head down and work 24 seven for like two months straight. And then I want like two weeks of no one knowing my phone number. Sloth time. Yes. So, <laughs> so I just think I, like for me and, and my team and everybody that works with me, just communication is key. Like I, they will say like, Hey, Teresa, I'm like, I'm in, I'm in insane work mode, like throw what you need at me. But then, you know, a month later they may say, Hey, I need to take a week off. Like I'm turning my phone off. And so I think like, th- that's what I think is healthy is asking for what you need. Because yeah. I, like, with, with some of my people, like I got in the habit of saying of, of like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to overload you. Whereas they're in a work sprint, you know, I, like sprint is the best mm-hmm. way, way I can say it. Cause that's sort of what I get into too, is I just, you know, and I know as a researcher, as someone that writes papers, you have to just get into these sprints, but then you also need time to recharge your batteries. And, and I think that's what we don't do a good job of communicating is, you know, Hey, I'm okay. I'm in, I'm in go mode now, but like, please, you know, respect my boundaries when I say, Hey, I need this, this week off. So. Right. Yeah. And I think that is totally, um, normal and acceptable in a, in business practice. When I come from the academic world and I'm working with trainees and CFs, there's a hard line for them. That's hard because yeah. of power balance and newness and the unknowns and this eagerness to please and feeling like they can't say no, which is also a skill that people need to learn. Um, but that's, I think, where we can be good role models to the younger um, generation. Is that the right way to say it? I don't know. I'm not that old. So um, yeah. the yeah. newer clinicians, yeah. how's that? Yeah. The up and coming trainees that are coming into the field and just, you know, letting them know that it's okay to say no, it's okay to have boundaries. Um, Cause they can't do that as easily because of power struggles and imbalances and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. I think no, not right now is my most favorite saying. Like like we experience that a lot, just, you know, with, with people that want to come on the podcast or want to write resources for the collective, you know, I'll reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, can you come on in the next few months? And they're like, yes, I'd love to, but I can't, but I don't want to miss my opportunity. I'm like, it's not a missed opportunity. It's a, you know, you tell me when, and we'll make it happen. And, and it's interesting. Like a lot of the responses, like people are just so like, think that I'm never going to let them come on or, or never want to work with them in the future if they don't say yes right now. And I'm like, I'm the most flexible person in the world when it comes to that. And I wish that people got better at communicating, you know, like, like you said, I wish people just got better at communicating what they need because it's important. Like a, a no does not mean no, never. It just means a no, not right now. I've got other things that have to take priority over this, but it's something I still want to do. And I also want to encourage clinicians to go back and revisit those opportunities too. Like, I don't think, I don't believe in closed doors. Like if you didn't take an opportunity to present or something like that, there's always next year or there's, yeah, I I just, I I don't like that we get stuck in these, these boxes that this is just an open door now and it's never going to be open ever again. Like your career is constantly evolving. Your personal life is constantly evolving. And, and that's part of, you know, I think the nuance is learning how to balance the two. Yeah. Well, I think you just touch on something that I've been 
dabbling in lately is this idea of competency and um, expertise, right? So you had mentioned earlier that you invite people on that are clinical experts or that they, they come on, but um, I think we're all in training, right? Everybody yeah. is learning yeah. something new and it's cyclical, yeah. a, a revolving door, if you will, just because you're an expert in one area doesn't mean that you're not contributing new things. I mean, that's why I have job security because I don't know all the answers, yeah. <laughs> um, which is good, right? I mean, I always have a research question to ask. Um, yeah. I always have a student to teach because we don't know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's the scariest thing to say out loud. And it's my favorite thing. I'm like, I don't know. You go find out. You yeah. Go right, yeah. You go, go right ahead and finish your PhD, Teresa, and figure right. out the answer to that question. Yeah. So, um, so that's a good thing. But I also think that, um, when we're developing expertise, we feel like, or, you have to make it through a door. You know, yes. you were talking about the closed doors, but making it through a door, but like there's just a long series of doors and they just continue to open or spin around and around until you learn more about what you're thinking about. Um, yeah. So this idea of competency, you know, going back to critical review is a skill. It's something that I want my students to be competent in, uh, but they're continually learning and figuring that out as new resources or different types of resources are being developed that we that we use or new research articles are coming out and we have to think about you know is this way that we think about it the same as we did 20 years ago the answer is no so it's a it's a constant journey if you will um and I like that because otherwise we're not we're not learning yeah I I think it's, it's an interesting dichotomy to be honest like I have I'll bring some people on the podcast that, gosh, they like, will just have so much experience, you know, but they're not someone that is a content creator or they're not someone that's a quote unquote, for lack of a better term, no name in the field, you know? And so I'll bring them on and people will write like, well, who is this person? And it's like, they are literally your colleague that's been working in your local hospital for 30 years. They have a crap ton of knowledge. And so I, I, that's something that I really try to balance is, is just because you're not this big public figure, does it mean you don't know anything? Absolutely not. Like, and then on the flip side there, it's really funny because there's so much imposter syndrome in our field too. And there are these researchers that have done phenomenal work. And I, I, there's some of these researchers that are your friends, Jordan, that I've been talking to for four years about like, I don't know if I'm ready to go on. I don't know if I'm smart (laughs) enough. And I'm like, please, for the love of God, please go so it's, it's everybody has something to contribute yeah 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 so like I said it's just it's interesting that there's such imposter syndrome with some people but then other people we know everybody can contribute and and we don't all know everything and that's to bring it full circle that is the impetus of swallow your pride is just to get people having these conversations so yeah right well I think too you know if we're having imposter syndrome or we're doing work and we're not sure about it Another way, another reason why it's so important to have some type of critical review metric is that we can critically review ourselves. Yeah. Right. We can review our own work, decide if it's, you know, up to our own standard or up to our own par, get some uh, courage, put it out there in the world, ask somebody else to critically appraise it and review it. And then also acknowledge limitations because, you know, this paper itself is a critical review and it has limitations. So um, I think that's the other thing too. We just, um, no matter what the resources or where the information's coming from, there's always going to be limitations and acknowledging those is important and being transparent about those is important, which is 
that whole question of number eight that came up, uh, does it refer to areas of uncertainty? This paper shows that as a field, our resources are not doing that well enough. So I think that's what um, kind of next steps for people like you who are content creators or other people who are web page hosts, even our own uh, Asha, (laughs) you're right. There are, there are, areas that we can all improve on. And so acknowledging our limitations, having ways to critique ourselves to know where those improvements can happen, and then being willing to take the next step to say, yeah, you're right. This is something that we need to do a little bit better. That was the impetus of this paper is to say, what are people using? How do these resources stand up? You know, what are the limitations of them? How does this look across the board and how can it be improved as a field? And then again, that interesting outcome that, you know, students versus experienced SLPs are no better at reviewing. And so as a field, this is an area of competency that we need to continue to strive to improve in and be understanding that different types of resources look differently um, and that, you know, access to them behind a paywall um, is something that's an important consideration when we are doing critical review. Yeah, interesting. I have a few thoughts, Jordan, and I and I I've always wanted to tell you this, but I didn't. I've never told you this. But when this paper first came out, and I just was getting hit from all angles with it. Like some people were like, "Can you believe this?" and other people were like, "This is fantastic." And I was like, <laughs> "Guys," and I I don't remember what was going on. Like I had something going on crazy behind the scenes, like in my personal life, that I was like, "You guys, I can't even like think about this paper for like give me a minute, like give me a minute to look into it." But what was interesting was I called one of our mutual friends. I'll, I'll tell you off the air who it is. And I was like, what do you think of this? And he goes, Teresa, do better. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he goes, do better. And he goes, Jordan's challenging you to do better. And I said, dude, I'm trying the best. I'm doing the best I can. And he was like, no, he goes, what I mean by that is do better in, in what, what is your aim for this? You know, what, what do you want swallow your pride to look like? And run with that. Like, do you want it to be completely research focused? Then run with that. Do you want it to be just clinical focused and run with that? And it's actually, it's a conversation I still have in the back of my head all the time because I don't, to be honest, I don't have a clear answer for that because I, I want it to, I want to bridge the gap better. I want to have a good clinician researcher support system where we talk about all the research, but we talk about what it looks like in the real world and, it's a kind of everybody's bridge is different. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard. It's hard it when is. you're trying to build all the bridges. Yes. Thank so you. Maybe what he's, maybe what he's yeah. just saying is build the bridge you want to build. Yeah. Well, and, instead and of everybody else's bridge. Right. Right. And that was it. And, and he's, he's like, you're going to burn yourself out. You're going to, you know, burn this podcast to the ground if you don't get clear on what you want to do. And in turn, you know, we'll help the field better by being very clear about it. And I don't know that I've done that, but just everyone, it's a work in progress. Okay. Everybody's a work in progress, but you know, just to hear you say that is like, yeah, everybody has to do better. You're exactly right. Do better. And I'll just reiterate, you know, this project came from an undergraduate student project, a research summer project for a research uh, student who's my co-author, Leanna Pollock. Um, And she's now out and graduated, has her C's, you know, she's changing the world one swallow at a time too. But the idea that a student was thinking, wait a second, I don't know how to do this. How does everybody else do it? We realized as, you know, 
not as a field, this is limited, but within dysphagia, we're still not very good at it. So we have a ways to go. We're not good at a lot of things. So I'm just here to point out this one specific thing that we're not very good at. Um, But, you know, the fact that we can actually think about specific steps to take to improve things, I think is really important. Um, Be transparent about it. And, you know, as a researcher, it is my job to call, not call people out, but but to talk about things that are sticky because I don't have a skin yeah. in the game. Yeah. So yeah. But, there's no I, dog. Yeah. But to, to be honest, I love the way that you're approaching this. Like I, it's very, I don't know, non-emotional. Is that, is that, should I say that? I, I don't sure. there's, there's so many. Well, you, you can get emotional that yeah. this is your business and your yeah. life and your livelihood. This, yeah. you know, mine is to, to talk about things. So. Yeah, yeah I but I, but I'm, I love having just like professional conversations that aren't emotional, you know, because like it is, it is a, it's my profession. It's a business to me. You know, I have my emotions. I have things like that behind the scenes and that's mine to deal with. But what I'm here to do and what my vision is and, and with helping, my vision is just crystal clear in helping patients that need help swallowing, get the help that they need so they can swallow and enjoy the holidays, enjoy meals with their family. Like that vision is so crystal clear to me. And so sometimes the pieces get lost in translation or get, you know, dissected and, and it's, it's tough, but I think I, I love what you're doing. And I think to switch to my business owner brain, I think what's interesting is, is like knowing these things would help, you know, how, how are clinicians, you know, what are they looking for in different resources and, and not, you know, then my researcher brain says, don't teach the, to the test, but that's just sort of where I'm thinking, you know, what, what can we do to help clinicians make these better decisions? You know, are these things that we can say, Hey, you know, this is what our product offers. This is what it can do for you. This is not what it can do for you. If you need help with this, this, and this, this is a different direction that you can go. But, and, and I agree that we all can do a lot better with that. So. Yeah. Well, I'll go back to what you said. Your clinical mission is it all goes back to the patients, right? So that's, that's the important part. And I think sometimes clinicians might forget that even though they work with patients all the time. Yes. Um, my end goal is to help my students never forget that the patients are where we're trying to end up. So um, I like that you said that. Yeah, it's, it's, I have to remind myself. I mean, I, yeah, I could get stuck in the weeds. I can get stuck in a million different directions if I don't keep my focus on the patients. And that's what I have to remind myself of daily, you are doing this work. It's brutal. Some days it's absolutely brutal, but I'm doing it for the patients. And it's, yeah, I, I just, it's something that I'm really passionate about having clinicians and SLPs be crystal freaking clear on why they do what they do. Because I think that that does attribute a lot to burnout. And, you know, if you're not, if you don't remember your why, or you don't remember why you got into this field in the first place, it's so easy to get derailed. It's so easy to get sucked into these negative thought traps and and not that they don't exist. I'm not saying that at all, but learning the skills to sort of get out of those or the support system to lean on and just getting really crystal clear on your vision and and your mission and why you got into this in the first place. Right. I agree. I'm glad we got to talk about this today. Jordan, thank you so much. So let me ask you, where are you going from here? What are you, what what are you, what are you creating from here? Can you share with me? Well, I'll just say I'm at, I'm no longer considered to be early career faculty, which is great, but it doesn't necessarily, I feel, feel like I know what I'm doing, which I don't know if that's reassuring or not. Um, I had a meeting with some other early career faculty and 
they were asking me some questions. They said, well, you're supposed to know you've done this for a few years. I'm like, no, no, no. Yes. <laughs> doesn't mean I necessarily know, but you know, I think that goes back to that idea of continual learning. Yes. Um, I definitely have some papers that are coming out. I have a couple of grants that are f- finalizing and I've got some grants that I'm working on. Um, both of these are in this area that I'm interested in of training and competency measurement and thinking about how we can better train clinicians and students so that they feel competent and ready. Um, but this idea of competency and this expertise, kind of like we were talking about before, it's very um, non-quantitative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's very hard to measure. And we know that our self-perception of competency does not ever align with our actual competency. And so thinking about how we measure that is kind of my new um, area of interest and in research yeah. because it aligns with my mission of growing respected students who provide the best clinical care. Right. Mm-hmm. So in order to, to grow those students, I have to be able to know if they're competent. How do we know if they have the best clinical care, if they are not competent and what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, so that's, that's my area, um, that I'm diving into now. We'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, love that. I think what's so interesting is I, I can't remember if I said this on a podcast or just on a call, but if you guys already heard this, I apologize. It was, I'm, I'm really in this weird identity crisis right now with what I want to do with my PhD, which is interesting because it's always been about swallowing disorders. It's always been about dysphagia. I, I love fees. I love, you know, getting instrumentation into nursing homes. That's been my drive for forever. Then I have this child with a feeding and swallowing disorder, and I realized that I wrote some papers this semester on my son and my experiences. And so I had a professor that was like, oh, great. Is this your dissertation project? And I was like, no. But and on the flip side, the curriculum path or the, the, the track that I'm in for my PhD is curriculum development because I'm so interested in how do we get how do we get this education out there better to our clinicians? And so I sort of have these three things that are just eating at me all the time, plus being a business owner, plus I'm working PRN at the hospital to keep up my clinical hours. So it's, you know, I've got all these things going on and I don't, I don't know. I've always forget your personal life. People always forget that. Like there's that too. We're we're actual people that have to go to the grocery store and return the library books, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do laundry and you know, all that. Oh gosh. The laundry is never ending. Yes. Yeah. Um, My dog, I hear you all over the house, you know, there's that. So well, so I'll tell you this. Um, when I started my PhD, I did so because I knew I wanted to go back to teach. I always knew I wanted to teach. Um, I'm not a pediatric person. I love kids, but I love mine the best. And I just didn't want to spend my days with kids all day. Yes. Yes. So I thought, well, how am I going to teach if I don't want to be with kids? I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach adults. That's that's where I want to teach. And so I really like that. But it wasn't until a couple of years into my PhD that I realized, oh, wait a second, this is a research degree that I'm earning right now. (laughs) And I know that sounds really funny because it seems like that would be obvious, but my whole goal at the end of my PhD was to go into academia to teach. Um, And I discovered my love of research along the way. And I see, I feel like I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm the opposite. That's so funny because I've wanted to go back and get my PhD ever since. I mean, I did an undergrad thesis. I did a graduate thesis. I wanted to go into research, but then along the way I was like, crap, I like teaching. I'm really passionate about education now. So, so so now I just, you know, research teaching or research training. That's (laughs) I put them together to do that. But in trying to find out your dissertation question, right? You're not just trying to 
do that one project. It's the very beginning drop in the bucket of a long research career if you decide to use your PhD for research, because since yeah. it is a research um, degree, um, and starting what they call a programmatic line of research, right? And figuring out what that's going to look like. So your first question should be the first question that leads you to the next question that leads you to the next question and trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, So when I was doing my PhD, I was looking at standardization. Well, now this idea of standardization is moving from modified barium swallow studies into how do we standardize critical review or standardize competency measurements. And, And it's kind of, you know, develop from there. So cool. I love it, Jordan. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing that. I, th- I think that's just such an interesting lens into what you're doing with this. And, and it's, I, I, yeah, this is why I love doing the podcast because I love these conversations and this is not something you're going to find in a journal article. Why is Jordan no. doing this? So <laughs> awesome. Thank well, you so learning from everybody is really important. Um, so yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. It was good to talk with you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.